0: Welcome to Flatbush in Maine, a podcast from Brooklyn Historical Society,
1: where we make history the Brooklyn way.
0: Each month, Flatbush in Maine digs into Brooklyn's quirky, surprising, diverse history, linking it to the most salient issues shaping our world today.
1: And we give a glimpse into how we make and preserve history every day here at Brooklyn Historical Society, a 153-year-old museum, archives, and urban history center. We are your hosts... Zahir Ali, oral historian at Brooklyn Historical Society.
0: And Julie Golia, director of public history at Brooklyn Historical Society. Meet us at the intersection of Brooklyn's past and present.
1: In this episode of Flatbush in Maine, we're gonna explore the history of the Brooklyn waterfront.
0: This is Brooklyn's moment, and the market revolution is all about connections. It's all about networks and conduits. And Brooklyn's conduits are not just to Manhattan across the way where we're bringing people and food back and forth, but increasingly throughout the world.
1: Julian assistant public historian Katie Lasdow talk about the life and death of one 19th century warehouse worker.
2: Today we go to Dumbo and we're surrounded by fancy restaurants, fancy apartments, all these things, and you forget that underneath all of that shiny new um, patina of development is, are these legacies of folks who lived in this neighborhood before it was anything like that. So here,
0: and oral history archivist Brett Dion listen to waterfront stories from our oral history collection.
3: Factories over there. In many places, they have signs in the world. No Puerto Ricans allowed those days. And if you get in line over there to get a job, forget it. You was gonna get beat up out you're Puerto Rican those days.
0: And we'll learn about young adults' experiences here at Brooklyn Historical Society.
4: I feel like I seem so much smaller now because I started thinking that in the future people are gonna look back and we're gonna be so old fashioned the way that we look back in the 1960s the 50s.
1: It's springtime here in Brooklyn, and everyone's headed outside. Now, one of my favorite places to go is just a stone's throw away from Brooklyn Historical Society, and that is Brooklyn Bridge Park. Brooklyn Bridge Park is a recently developed one-and-a-half-mile stretch of waterfront between the neighborhoods of Dumbo and Red Hook.
0: To situate you, this is the area that includes the two major bridges that mark the skyline of lower Manhattan, the Brooklyn Bridge and the Manhattan Bridge. And for those of you who aren't familiar, the name Dumbo comes from the acronym Down Under the Manhattan Bridge Overpass. So this area today is a place of leisure. There's places to hang out and to work out and to play soccer. There are piers that have been recreated into areas of activity that bring in millions of people a year.
1: You know, one of the things that I remember the first time I went to Dumbo uh, were all of these old brick buildings just right on the edge of the water and they most of them were boarded up or closed down and I always wondered what what was that what was there
0: yeah now a lot of them are torn down and they were ghosts of a very different waterfront a waterfront 150 years ago that would not have been a center of leisure but instead a center of commerce and industry and a place of work for millions of people many of whom were immigrants or migrants over the last several hundred years
1: take me back to of the 19th century. What was the Brooklyn waterfront like back then?
0: If we got in our time machines and went back to mid and late 19th century Brooklyn, we would have been in a premier site of warehouse storage in New York Harbor. Brooklyn was a growing city in its own right at that time, and its waterfront became lined with essentially brick and wood warehouses stretching all the way from just north of where the Brooklyn Bridge eventually would have been, several miles around the coast. And in fact, from the water, it would have looked like a fortress, which earned Brooklyn the nickname the Walled City.
1: This is really fascinating. I, I never really thought of what Brooklyn would look like from the water because we're always in Brooklyn looking out onto the water yeah I think we
0: continue to be a a city that forgets that we are a waterfront city yeah and that the growth of this area is really came from the waterfront and this is the moment in which that growth that economic growth is happening
1: now you have spent quite amount of time exploring and studying and researching this history of where the water meets Brooklyn and what that means tell us a little bit about your work
0: Well, let me tell you about why we're doing it. It's very exciting because Brooklyn Historical Society is opening up a new satellite museum. Um, By the end of this year, we will have a Brooklyn Historical Society, Dumbo, very appropriately, it will be located in one of the few 19th century warehouses that are still left on the waterfront, a building called the Empire Stores, which is situated within Brooklyn Bridge Park. And we're going to dedicate that museum to the history, the many histories of the waterfront. But of course, such an central part of this story is looking at Empire Stores and buildings like it as the crucible of capitalism here in Brooklyn.
1: Before these warehouses, before we get to talking about these warehouses, I'm just really, you know, like I, and I think a lot of people who live in Brooklyn, we are tend to think about Brooklyn in, in terms of Greater New York and this bustling city, this really urban, urban. exactly. Mm-hmm. But before that, Brooklyn was still a site of of production, but of different kind of production.
0: Absolutely, I mean, if even heading up into the early nineteenth century. You know, New York, a separate city at that time, Brooklyn was its own town and then city was a booming metropolis, but Brooklyn was quite the opposite. Brooklyn was an agricultural center producing the foodstuffs that made the growth that's happening in New York possible. So even up to 1810, the population here is still, you know, 4,000, 5,000 people. Jump forward to 1860, it's the third largest city in the United States.
1: You know, this is, uh, I, it's so funny. I don't know how many people would think of Brooklyn as a farm, <laughs> as a farming borough. It um, was. Tell us what changed from this 4,000 people agricultural borough or agricultural city into this center for uh, it, it be, what becomes international trade and commerce?
0: A couple things. Well, first, it's a, it becomes a city in 1834, and that's part of our, that's part of our story here. But um, there's a ferry that is established. Now, there's been a ferry back and forth between Brooklyn and Manhattan since the 1640s, but the establishment of a steam ferry in 1814 now allows hundreds of people to cross back and forth very regularly, and then Brooklyn is able to become a commuter suburb And you see the emergence of Brooklyn Heights as really the first suburb in American history. And Brooklyn Heights is sitting up on a bluff and then below it, along the waterfront, there's a body of land, miles and miles of coastline that are now possible for commercial development. And so in the 1830s and 40s, that, this is the moment when you start to see businesses wanting to move their storage away from the crowded old piers in Manhattan to this new undeveloped land in Brooklyn.
1: And this is what historians call the market revolution. This is Brooklyn's part in the market revolution, which is the process by which producers and farmers and manufacturers were able to get their goods and services to the marketplace through developments in transportation and communication and technology. And this is Brooklyn's story of the transformation of Brooklyn in the market revolution. This is
0: Brooklyn's moment. And the market revolution is all about connections. It's all about networks and conduits. And Brooklyn's conduits are not just to Manhattan across the way where we're bringing people and food back and forth, but increasingly throughout the world as the goods that are coming into these warehouses are coming from from everywhere. You know, the the Warehouse Empire stores where BHS's new museum will be was the center of the Calcutta trade. There were places that were storing coffee from Brazil, cotton and tobacco from the South, sugar from the Caribbean, um, animal hides from the Argentinian pampas. So walking along the waterfront in the 19th century, many people found it incredibly um, exotic and romantic, these amazing things coming in. But of course... That belies a history of inequality that That's is embedded right. in these goods. That's right? right.
1: When you when you said cotton and sugar, yeah. immediately I thought the Brooklyn is now. Uh, this the story of Brooklyn certainly implicates um, exploited labor and slavery.
0: And this is the paradox of Brooklyn's growth. Um, New York New York State abolishes slavery in 1827. So Brooklyn proudly touts itself as a free city. And yet its economic might, its growth, is built on the backs of enslaved labor in the United States and throughout the world. And that's something that many citizens aren't willing to grapple with, but others face every day.
1: You know, I think this is the the interesting irony of of the market revolution in the 19th century and I think even of globalization today, which is on the one hand, these are processes that bring people closer together through these connected networks. Um, but on the other hand, it also creates this kind of distance between the consumer and the place of or site of production. So you you actually don't have to see, (laughs) you don't have to witness, you don't have to experience the exploitation that goes into producing the thing that you're consuming
0: absolutely the alienation of production always to me underscores that um you know the that globalization was a central part of Brooklyn society in the 19th century as well as today sugar in the 19th century as people stirred their sugar into their tea and their coffee well i think of people with their apple products today yeah. you know yeah. with the you know the, yeah. the 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 press in the past few years about the treatment of apples workers yes. in asia and they're not that different you
1: absolutely. know absolutely no so the walled city is this kind of this this really interesting nexus of so many things you talked about. This was a place where all of these exotic goods were coming in and you could almost experience the world through smells and sights and sounds. Um, but it was also even though the these were goods and services being produced elsewhere sometimes through exploit, exploited labor there was also you know une- inequality in here in brooklyn it was a
0: workplace millions of workers worked along brooklyn's waterfront during this sort of industrial and commercial heyday many of them were recently arrived immigrants or later migrants um, and this is a time especially in the 19th century, well before any kind of labor regulation. So it was a dangerous place to work. It was a place where people of different races and ethnicities were pitted against each other, sometimes in deadly ways. An 1846 riot, for example, broke out at the Atlantic docks in Red Hook, in which people, shots were fired and workers died. Workers killed each other. So this was an incredibly difficult place to work, and to live if you are poor.
1: Now, many of these workers and their voices and experiences get lost in the historical record. So how do we reconstruct the stories of these sites, the story of this process, of this economic development, while being attentive to the experiences of the people who helped to make it happen?
0: To answer that question, I think it's time to go into the archives. A couple years ago, I was searching the New York Times online and I came across this tiny little death notice in the New York Times for a man named Michael Harkins. From there, I got very excited and I emailed it to our guest, Katie Lasdow, who is a PhD candidate at Columbia University and Assistant Public Historian here at Brooklyn Historical Society. Katie's been part of a curatorial team researching the history of Brooklyn Waterfront for an upcoming long-term exhibition. Katie, do you remember the day that I sent you Michael Harkins'
2: death notice? I do. You were so excited about <laughs> it, and you told me to go forth and find our worker, and so <laughs> that is what I did. What does that mean in historian
0: speak? What was so significant about this little, I don't know, was like 40, 50-word death notice?
2: Yeah, I mean, it means so much. I mean, from that, you know, two sentences, I think it's two really long sentences, we were able to find out not only that there was a guy named Michael Harkins, but that he was 45 years old when he died, that it was in the year 1873, and this was the best part that, um, well, aside from the fact that he died, poor guy, but the best part was that we were able to figure out where he lived, and they took the, the people who found him when he was killed, Um, at the Empire stores, took him to his home, which was 195 Plymouth Street, which is in the neighborhood of Vinegar Hill here in Brooklyn. So you have his name, you've got his
0: age, and you've got his
2: address. Where do you go from there? So I sort of feel like I'm a plug for, you know, all of those like wonderful TV shows about searching for your ancestry because I immediately went to ancestry.com. I found so much um, the coolest piece of information popped up almost immediately and that was the 1860 federal census for the United States, which lists a Michael Harkins um, exact age that we want him to be um, living in Vinegar Hill um, on Plymouth Street with a wife named Mary, a daughter named Mary and a son named William.
0: And so Vinegar Hill, that's really close to where he worked, right? Tell me a little about that neighborhood at the time.
2: Absolutely, yeah. So Vinegar Hill is um, a predominantly Irish neighborhood in the 1850s, 60s, and 70s when Michael Harkins and his family would have been living there. In fact, it gets the nickname Irish Town for the sheer number of Irish immigrants who are living there. Uh, in that neighborhood. Um, It's named for the fact that there was a battle of Vinegar Hill um, in the Irish Revolution of 1798, of all things, and these Irish immigrants who are coming to New York City and to Brooklyn in the 19th century take that heritage with them when they create this neighborhood. And they essentially set up what becomes a center of working class life and community in Brooklyn. So how far did he live from work? Not far at all, just around the corner. So his commute to work, if you can even call it that, would have been a quick walk down the down the road. Now that sounds really attractive to me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a doesn't A quick commute, but it probably wasn't so attractive in the 19th century.
2: No, not at all. Um, although he did live close to the waterfront, where Michael Harkins did most of his work. Um, Vinegar Hill was not a swanky place. It's not, um, we can't think of it like we would when we think about Dumbo and those surrounding streets today. Um, it was a working class neighborhood, which meant that you have a high proportion of tenement housing, which is um, essentially your earliest form of apartment building in New York and Brooklyn. And tenements for Irish families meant Pretty subpar housing. You're going to be living among many families with not the best uh, amenities, and you know, forget about utilities, running water, bathrooms, things like that. Um, so home life was not was not cushy for Michael Harkins and his family.
5: Yeah,
0: I mean, Dumbo was this incredibly industrial neighborhood. And yeah, you know, today we think of luxury waterfront living, but back then it would have been kind of a noxious place to
2: live, right? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, think about having to either, you know, walk out to the back courtyard to go to the bathroom in a privy or stepping out onto the street to find a publicly accessible water pump sometimes if you needed to get fresh water. um, And it's probably not the freshest. Right. And if we
0: look at maps of the time, there were coal um, stores near there. There were lead factories around there. I mean, this was a place of high industry by the end of the 19th century.
2: Absolutely. And all of that is kind of coming into contact with one another. You have the, the residential and the industrial right up close against one another.
0: Cool. So let's get back to our census. Tell me about what you found out about his family.
2: Yeah, so Michael was married to a woman uh, named Mary Gallagher, and we know that they immigrate um, sometime around the 1850s, but what I couldn't figure out is whether they came together. So they either get married right before they come over to Brooklyn, or they get married shortly after arriving here. They have two kids, a daughter named Mary, um, which gets interesting when you're trying to search for two Mary Harkins. Mary Gallagher, that's uh, yeah, <laughs> pretty common Irish name. Yeah, yeah exactly. And a, uh, a son named William. Um, and... Mary Harkins, the mom, uh, most likely uh, worked as a housekeeper. We have a few records um, where she's listed as keeping house and as a housekeeper. And we know that she made a little money because she was actually able to open her own savings account, um, which ties her uh, not only to her husband, because the record links her as a married woman, but also to the fact that she was economically self-sufficient in some ways. She was able to amass um, a pretty good amount of personal property in order to open a bank account. That is so interesting. Interesting. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Okay, so first up
0: was census. Then where'd you go?
2: So from the census, I was able to sort of figure out this family. And then I moved into more records. So we find that that bank account for Mary Harkins. We find. other records like city directories that help trace where they're living. So that a city directory is essentially like your 19th century phone book before there's a phone. So it lists people where they live and what they do for work. And so I could trace Michael Harkins and their addresses over time. I also found other census records that show the family getting older and where they might be moving and the children growing up. And one of the interesting things is that William Harkins sort of like falls off the radar. We don't really know what happens to him. And so the these were some of the questions that I kind of kept in the back of my head as I was researching. There's
0: such an irony to that, because usually it's the women that fall off the historical record that are difficult to find. And in this case, we lost one of our, our men in the family. Yeah,
2: absolutely. Strangely enough, Mary Gallagher-Harkins and the daughter, Mary, become two of the kind of mainstays of this family It's interesting. All these records are
0: giving us all this demographic information about the family, but it's harder to get sort of the texture of the neighborhood. Where did you go to get a sense of what it was like to live in Vinegar Hill?
2: Yeah, newspapers are a good place to start. Um, I was sort of trying to figure out if if any publications had said anything about what life was like in Vinegar Hill and so I started typing in to the search engines just their addresses to see if anything would pop up and oh my gosh so much popped up. So you popped in our addresses what came up? (sighs) My goodness Julie so living in Vinegar Hill was crazy so the the Harkins family lived in two different tenements, one in the 1860s and one in the 1880s, I believe, in which two different um, murders occurred. Murders? Murders, yes. Um, in one instance, um, a woman by the name of Margaret Donaldson, and this is in 1867, she was um, unfortunately uh, murdered by her husband um, in front of their children Yeah, and the same thing happened in the 1880s when Bridget Lindsay, who was a neighbor of the Harkins, she was also killed by her husband in front of their four children. Oh my gosh,
0: so they lived in two different buildings where two murders took place. Yep and we obviously don't necessarily have demographic information but that has got to mean something about the level level of crime or danger in living in this neighborhood.
2: Yeah, so it's it's a little complicated and I think first we should make sure that it's clear that you know newspaper reporting in the 19th century is not of the caliber that we would hold it to today. So Back in the 1800s, a lot of newspaper writers would sensationalize a lot of stories, and they often, not only would they sensationalize the news that they reported, they would often target certain groups in society, and one of those groups was Irish immigrants. Um, And this is at a particular moment in American history where there are a lot of prejudices and what we would call, you know, nativist sentiments um, about immigrants, particularly the Irish, who are coming into cities and in droves in this period. And so when we read about violent crime in Vinegar Hill in the 1800s, we have to sort of contextualize it within this understanding that journalistic standards aren't as high and that this is a particular moment of certain types of prejudice. That's all of that to say that living in tenements was was violent and dangerous and crime was, was Prevalent in people's lives, um, but you know, this is these are folks who are living with very little. They're very poor. Um, like I said before, with tenement living, you know, you're crammed up against other families. Y- you have people struggling with alcoholism. You have people struggling with poverty. And for many of these people, it leads them to their breaking point. And unfortunately, for these women and these families, they meet their end.
0: So, Katie, why why is it important for us to follow this treasure hunt and tell the story of the Harkins family?
2: I think one of the reasons it's important is we often think about Dumbo and Vinegar Hill and and the neighborhoods in and around the Brooklyn waterfront as sort of these swanky, posh places to live. You know, today we go to Dumbo and we're surrounded by fancy restaurants, fancy apartments, all these things, and you forget that underneath all of that shiny new um, patina of development are these legacies of folks who lived in this neighborhood before it was anything like that, and the Harkins family is one place where we can begin to see that story. And it makes me think about the hundreds of
0: thousands of other workers who might have lived and died along the waterfront, and in a lot of ways, Michael Harkins has come to represent them for us.
1: In this installment of Voices of Brooklyn, we will get to hear another perspective of what life and work was like on the Brooklyn waterfront, and here to do that, uh, joining us is Brett Dion, Brooklyn Historical Society's Oral History Project Archivist. Um, Brett, welcome to uh, Flatbush in Maine. Thank you. It's great to be here. So Brett, tell us about the project that you've been working on here at BHS.
5: Well, uh, the National Historical Publications and Records Commission gave Brooklyn Historical Society a grant in mid-2015 to process uh, many oral history collections, and one of those collections is the Puerto Rican Oral History Project Records. Uh, This features uh, about 70 oral history recordings, most of them from 1973 to 1975, and um, it really is quite an interesting collection. Tell us about the narrator that we're going to be listening to. We'll hear from Francisco Prats, and uh, he was born at about 1902, uh, came to Brooklyn in 1921, and uh, did some merchant marine work, and then went uh, to work on the docks and the piers of Industry City, Bush Terminal. He does uh, express how difficult it was uh, finding work and that... The uh, There were signs at many factories and uh, other industry um, uh, places where uh, they were just rejecting Puerto Ricans from even applying for work.
3: So then, after I come out of the sea, I went to work in the docks. Maybe one day, sometime one day, sometime mm. a month, you don't get it. Yeah. How many years were you uh, at sea? as a years? Well, in Metro Marina, when uh, 21, I come back in 24, and I stood around. And then I come back and started working in Bush Terminal in New York dock. It was hard to get it because they don't want to give us Puerto Rican a job? Really, what? in the docks? In no place. Those days, forget it. You, you was a uh, against the war. Why? Why didn't they want to give Puerto? Rican a job? They don't like the Puerto Rican those days. It was factories over here in. In J Street, all the way down by Robert Gay all those big factories over there. In many places, they had signs in the world. No Puerto Ricans allowed, those days. And if you get in line over there to get a job, forget it. You was gonna get beat up. They found out you're a Puerto Rican those days. Mm. And when the cops come and they know there's a Puerto Rican, that's good enough. You are going in jail, those days.
1: And that was Francisco Pratt uh, from the Puerto Rican Oral History Projects Records Collection here at Brooklyn Historical Society. To listen to more of this interview, you can check out our show notes at brooklynhistory.org forward slash flatbush dash Maine. Or you can come in to our library and listen to the entire interview and the other interviews that are part of this collection. As an added bonus to this episode's Voices of Brooklyn, we are going to shift from a voice from the past to a voice of the present. And here to introduce us to one of the younger voices of Brooklyn is Emily Potter and Jai, our Director of Education here at Brooklyn Historical Society. Emily, thank you for joining Flatbush in Maine. Thanks for having me. So, Emily, tell us about this program that BHS has called Teen Council.
6: Well, we're really committed to high-quality, inclusive, learner-driven education programming. And for the past nine years, we've led a um, teen programs that brought teens in to interpret Brooklyn history through their own words. This year, we've convened a teen council with 11 teens from eight Brooklyn high schools, they meet twice a week um, under the direction of our wonderful program educator, Pilar Jefferson, with support from Shirley Brownaline, who's our manager of teaching and learning here. So they've uh, visited resources around the city, other museums and that have teen programs. They've gone in depth to our collections and exhibitions to learn what it is that we do. And they've put, on, they put together an event on May 21st around the idea of street, which is a concept that they really felt was resonant to them and to their peers. Um, Whether it refers to street food or performance, it was something that they felt all teens could relate to. Um, So we're really interested to learn from them. What are the resources, whether they're our physical collections, um, our archival documents, the art on our walls, or even the way we do history and the way we think of it that they think are most important or that speak to them? And what's missing? What do they want to add to the story?
1: With that, Emily, why don't you introduce us to our teen guest?
6: Oh, it's my pleasure to introduce Sam Peppery, who's a 10th grader at Millennium Brooklyn High School.
1: Welcome, Sam, to um, Brooklyn Historical Society's podcast, Flatbush in Maine. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, Sam, what kind of things did you find here at BHS that you thought were really interesting that you wanted to share with your peers?
4: I was looking at the website, and we wanted to use some of the pictures for, like, Instagram posts and Facebook posts to promote people to come to the teen night that we're making because, like, the pictures, they're so they're so hipster, kind of. They're so old. They're so... They're black and white, or they're like really mellow colors, so I thought it really would catch the eye of teenagers. It seems like older cameras took really nicer pictures, because now you really take what you see, but then you take it, and it's kind of the picture comes out of more of a fantasy.
1: So there's there's something attractive, you think, to your generation about the vintage yeah, look definitely. of these? Yeah, um, do you remember any particular kind of addresses or or street scenes you wanted? You were attracted to.
4: Well, I was kind of attracted to just like street, and especially I saw a picture of these kids playing baseball on the street back in I think the 60s or the 50s, and it was all black and white, and it was they were just playing stickball, just being kids really. But for some reason, it had the way they were dressed, the way everything looked, the way that kids back then are still similar to kids now, but just with older technologies, older fashions, older older everything really. And it's just kind of interesting. And it just kind of it was a cool picture.
1: Based on your experience here as part of the teen council, how do you think history has informed the way you see yourself in the world?
4: I feel like I seem so much smaller now because I started thinking that in the future people are gonna look back and we're gonna be so old fashioned the way that we look back in the nineteen sixties, the fifties in the forties, everything, all the way back, even the two thousands, we all see him as old fashioned. So it's kind of kind of makes me look at myself as a history as a member of history and a member of a time from the two thousand and tens upwards.
0: Lots of great events happening in June at Brooklyn Historical Society. Zaheer and I have been looking at the calendar with great excitement. So Zahir, what are you going to be staying after work to attend?
1: I'm really excited about um, a program we're having on Tuesday, June 14th here at Brooklyn Historical Society called Call and Response, Black Power 50 Years Later. Um, for many who may know or may not know, Uh, This year marks 50 years since the call of Black Power. It's also 50 years since the founding of the Black Panther Party. And of course, we're in the midst of another uh, movement called Black Lives Matter. And so at this event, there'll be uh, Professor Robin Spencer will be leading the conversation with longtime Brooklyn activist, Reverend Dr. Herbert Daughtry, Basir M. Chawi, Uh, newer activists, Farah Tanis and DeRay McKesson. And I think this is going to be a really important conversation for all of us in Brooklyn to have.
0: I'm really excited for an event that's taking place at BHS on Thursday, June 16th, um, because a really influential man in the museum field is going to be visiting us to talk about um, his amazing new undertaking. That's Lonnie Bunch, who is the founding director of the National Museum of African-American history and culture, which is actually supposed to open um, at the end of this year. This is actually the only national museum devoted exclusively to the documentation of African-American life, history, and culture um, when it opens. So he has been a force in the museum field for many, many decades, and I'm really excited to hear his reflections. I'm also excited because this week we have a bonus endorsement um, from one of our wonderful colleagues here at Brooklyn Historical Society. We're being joined by Katie Williams. K.T. is Program and Communications Coordinator, which means she plays an indispensable role in thinking up and planning and executing the amazing public programs that BHS does week after week. So, Katie,
7: tell us what you're excited about for June. Um, Sure. I'm really excited about our program that's taking place on June 23rd. It's a Thursday. Um, It's called Redefined and Redesigned, Defying Gender Norms in Fashion. And we'll be bringing a panel of pioneering designers, models, and bloggers here to BHS to explore the intersection of gender, identity, and fashion. So who are some of the people who we're going to hear from that night? Um, Well, the panel is being led by the great Anita Dolce Vita. She is the owner and editor-in-chief of Dapper Q., And what's Dapper Q? Oh, good question. Uh, Dapper Q is a wonderful queer style website geared towards the empowerment of masculine presenting women, gender queers, and trans-identified individuals. Um, It's actually amongst the first digital spaces to champion menswear for those traditionally underserved by mainstream fashion. And on a nice side note, it's where I actually heard about the company, Mary Macho, that ended up providing me with my first non-ill-fitted suit for fancy occasions. I love that. That's awesome. And
0: then also, isn't
7: Ray Tutera going to be on the panel too? Yes, Ray Tutera will be here. Um, Ray is of the Brooklyn-based bespoke men and women's wear company Bindle & Keep, um, which makes custom suits for gender non-conforming and transgender clients. And Bindle & Keep is actually the focus of a new documentary called Suited, which was produced by Lena Dunham, amongst others, and it had its world premiere at Sundance this year. And it will be showing on HBO in June, so make sure to keep an eye out.
0: So here, I'm actually really excited to go to the June 23rd event that KT recommended as a gender historian Mm -hmm. um, because it really is going to prompt, I think, a great conversation about the role that clothes play in the social construction of, of gender and sexuality. And it's also this lovely segue into our next episode when Brooklyn's landscape meets queer analysis.
1: That's right, when we'll look at how specific Brooklyn places have provided seemingly invisible spaces for gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, and queer Brooklynites to build communities.
0: And with this episode of Flatbush in Maine, we've made Brooklyn history.
1: Thanks to our guests, Brooklyn Historical Society staff members, Katie Lasdow, Brett Dion, Emily Potter and Jai, K.T. Williams, and our team council member, Sam Peppery.
0: You can learn more about Flatbush in Maine at brooklynhistory.org flatbush-maine. There you'll find more details from each episode, pictures of documents and artifacts we talked about, and clips and info on oral histories.
1: And be sure to subscribe to our podcast and rate us at iTunes or any other podcast platform on which you listen to us. Our show music is by Joe Schloss. Find out more about him at josephschloss.com.
0: Tune in each month for lots more Brooklyn history.
1: From Brooklyn Historical Society, we are your hosts, Zahir Ali
0: and Julie Golia.